Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. In that moment, I felt like some relief because I knew that I had no, I knew that I knew nothing. I knew that there was no way for me to get out of whatever I was going through. I had limited life experience. I was, you know, 16, 17 years old, 16 years old. I had no idea. I was like, I've never had the experience of like being a thriving person. Like the people that I look up to in this world, those types of models for me was like, this is unattainable. This is unachievable. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Game, and I am your host. And today we have Brendan Berry. Brendan grew up feeling uncomfortable in his body. Anxiety and suicidal thoughts came early and he found himself in many situations where he felt like an outsider. He excelled in sports, but even that seemed to take him away from his peers as his skills meant he was asked to play at higher levels with older kids. When hazing in sports began, he left the group and began hanging out with the kids who drank and used. He began waking up in the night to drink vodka after his parents went to sleep. His grades tanked at one point, dropping as low as a 0.56 GPA. His relationships with his parents unraveled to the point where they told him they were sending him away to Cedars Academy. There he witnessed or experienced mental, physical, and sexual abuse. When he finally escaped the situation, he hit the bottle as hard as he possibly could. As his drinking and using escalated, a dream remained of finding a career in music. He found a way into music school, but only lasted a semester and a half before he overdosed and ended up in the ICU in a coma with a ventilator. The use didn't stop there. What followed was a DWI, jail, rehab, and finally lasting recovery. With recovery came a life he'd always dreamed of getting back into music school, making music for film and television, and even winning a Grammy. Today, Brendan works for Music Cares, which works to provide mental health and addiction recovery services, health services, and human services for people in the music industry. I am so excited for you to hear my conversation with Brendan today. We had a lot of fun talking and a lot of relating about our experiences. I had no idea a GPA could even get to 0.56, but Brendan schooled us all on that. And I just love how his passion for music and his career intersected enough to win him a Grammy. And now he gets to work with the organization to help other people who are struggling with the same things he struggled with. It's just a beautiful arc. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. So without further ado, I give you Brendan Berry. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Brendan, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Super fun. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about where you grew up, where you came from. Give me give me the the history on Brendan Berry. Yeah, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. Was raised in a, in a good home, middle-class family. My parents were one of the few families that were not in the government. 
but I was surrounded by the the spawns of politicians. Yeah, I grew up in a good home where we always had food on the table, always had a roof over our head, had access to good education. Yeah. When you think back to your childhood, what did it feel like? A, a lot of us, you know, have a distinct feeling of what it felt like as a kid. What did it feel like to be a kid in your skin when you when you think back to that? I distinctly remember feeling deeply uncomfortable in my skin. And I know that's a, a common thing that you'll hear from people in recovery. It wasn't so different for me. I knew that I was weird. I was wild. You know, my mom talks about how when we were in the grocery store and I was a toddler, she'd, you know, put me in the cart and I wouldn't stop talking. And she was like, I just wanted to like run out of there and scream because you wouldn't shut up. You know, as I, as I got older, I found that I really enjoyed playing sports and I enjoyed being around my peers, but I struggled with engaging socially and interacting with people in a way where I felt comfortable. So playing sports was a way where I could be around my peers and I could just, as long as I didn't stop moving, then I could continue being around people, but didn't have to talk that much, you know? And I think that I was kind of like labeled or viewed as like a weird person. And, and I was fine with that. Like I owned that, but I still just felt so deeply uncomfortable and couldn't quite figure out what it was that was going on. And so as I got older, I, I found out pretty quickly that I excelled at basketball when I first played on an organized team. It was seventh grade. By the eighth grade, the high school coach had taken a notice to my abilities and decided to put me on the JV high school basketball team when I was still a middle schooler. So I started playing some of their games. And like my closest friends were guys that I played basketball with. Freshman year of high school, I, you know, had started going through puberty and I felt so deeply uncomfortable in my skin. I just, I didn't want to exist. I just wanted to disappear. All I could do was just keep moving. So it was show up for school, play basketball. And I got put on the varsity team. And that was like, I was separated from the few people that I felt somewhat comfortable with. One quick story from that period of yeah. time, when I was in the ninth grade, I had braces. And I was so insecure about having braces that if I talked, I would always cover my mouth. Yeah, yeah. And when I talked, it was like minimal. And I spoke it just in monotone. My voice had dropped very quickly during my bar mitzvah. And... <laughs> And I was like, you know, this deep and, and people were just would call me Eeyore because when I talked to them, it was just this deep monotone voice. Teachers would say, Brendan, can you not cover your mouth? And I refused to uncover my mouth. After a year, I had my braces removed and I came to school and I was so excited. And I told my best friends, I was like, my braces are off. And they were like, you had braces? Because right. nobody heard me talking and no one saw my mouth when I did talk. But so freshman year, I got put on the, the basketball team and I was further separated from my friends. The varsity kids decided to start hazing that year. So they chased me around school. They chased me around downtown DC, Connecticut Avenue, down by Van Ness. I would run from class to class, door to door. So they were going to what, beat you up? No, the aim was to shave my head. What? Yeah. It was like, this was the first year they were like, we're going to haze our our new teammates first year on on varsity and doing so we're going to shave their heads and that's it so we can have that you know uniformity with all the rookies after a week of being chased they tackled me on the sidewalk on Connecticut Avenue like 3 4 or 5 guys picked me up carried me down the street back into the school pinned me down in the locker room and one guy had the the shears and started he couldn't he didn't know how to shave head so he was just ripping my hair out like ripping my hair out and then the coach came in and was like guys, we got practice. 
and they stopped. And I was left with just like patchy head. And I was like, I didn't know what to do. So for the next like month, I wore a beanie and practice every day rather than like having someone finish up the shave it. Yeah. As you know, just contributed to my general misery. And it sounds pretty traumatic. Yeah, I'd say like in the grand scheme of my life and the things that I've experienced related to my addiction and drug use, that would be like a lower level trauma, but something that for sure stuck with me where I was craving connection. I felt even more isolated. What was this, the 90s? This was the 90s. The good old 90s. Things were different in the 90s. Yep. I was not saved by the bell in that moment. (laughs) No, no, no. So eventually, did you shave your head? No. I just let my, my hair Love grow. I just it. let my hair grow back. And like, nice F you. eventually when I got more, well, it's just like, I, I was so uncomfortable in my skin. It was like very difficult for me to function in ways that I needed to engage with other people. So like to go to my mom and say like, Hey, can I, can you take me to get my hair cut? I just, I couldn't even do that. I was too afraid. Just these basic things. So I just, I wore a beanie. What do you think that's about? Because you're describing someone who, right? So we hear about you as a toddler, just really talkative and can't stop moving and, and, and just this almost like big bubbly personality, right? So somewhere that light is turned down and down and down and whether that's circumstance or, or internal. And then you're describing someone who clearly is struggling with some sort of depression and anxiety. What do you think, how, how would, when you look at that with, with, you know, professional eyes now at this stage, what do you, what kind of kid do you see? What do you see happening there? I see a kid who was struggling emotionally and didn't necessarily have the adults in his life who were able to pick up on what was going on and offer the type of support that was needed to work through the emotional challenges that I was facing. And I think that, you know, my parents' approach to raising my sister and I was that they wanted us to experience the world through our own eyes and through our own experiences and our own lived journeys. And and so we were given a lot of freedom and autonomy to just go and do whatever. So like I had some friends where their parents would say like, all right, if you're going to go from Brendan's house to the park to play basketball or to play soccer, we need you to call us and let us know. It's not just like, all right, you're going to hang out with Brendan. I'll see you at whatever time. Whereas with my parents, it was, you know, I go wherever I want and I do whatever I want. And so I think with that freedom, there also was maybe an absence of appreciating holistically what was going on with me. Eventually, they became more aware of what was happening. But I think that I had sank to such a low that it wasn't possible for someone to really engage with me in a way in which I could heal and find my my path to a more sustainable life at that age. And I think also in our within our institutions, there's a lack of understanding of how to nurture and support adolescents if they struggle with their ability to learn, their ability to emote, their ability to connect. You know, so psychoemotional education is something that I'm hearing more about in our education system now, but definitely at that time it was lacking. And so there's a number of systems where maybe I could have been supported, but I just, I wasn't. What did it look like when you found substances? So after that, that year of playing on the varsity basketball team, I kind of, I reached an emotional low where I felt like I need to find some way to change the way that I'm feeling. You know, my parents had a stock liquor cabinet when they would go to sleep. My dad was in bed at like nine, nine thirty every single night religiously. And my mom was in bed not so long after him when she finished watching 
some TV show or movies. And I would stay up and I would chat with my other depressed friends on AIM Instant Messenger. And then I absolutely heck yeah, I'd sneak downstairs and I'd pour myself a tall glass of vodka and I would just pound it. You know, my dad is of European descent and is an appreciator of alcohol. And my parents had always said, we want you to respect alcohol. So they would allow... I do. (laughs) Big respect. Huge respect. So much respect. So much that I'm going to steal an entire bottle of wine and drink it to the face. 100%. Yeah. It's just uh, feel good stuff. So yeah, it was just like, this is once I discovered like, this is a way to change that I feel. It's when I could, right? And try to do so in a sneaky way. Sometimes my mom would be watching TV and you could see the liquor cabinet from where she was sitting. And I would kind of like walk past, grab a bottle and then walk back and then pour a tall glass and then go back over, put it away. And was just like keeping an eye on her, making sure she was laser focused on the TV. And then I'm just like getting hammered. And that was my escape. From there, it was just like, I fully embodied my depression, where it was like, choosing what to wear every day, that's too difficult. So I had this blue sweater, this blue knit sweater, actually, it's still in my closet, but I would throw this on every day, it had holes in it, and I'd put patches on it, I could grow a beard of this caliber, but I didn't didn't know how to care for myself. So it was like patches, grew my hair out. It was like long, nappy curls, you know, every day, it was just this sweater. And then it was like, I started to engage in a lot of attention seeking behavior at school was like, let's do the drink a gallon of milk challenge in the middle of our lunch break. And then I'm projectile vomiting across the <laughs> locker room. <laughs> of course, you know, like I could throw up on command. So like, I'm just gonna just throw up in front of my peers for shits and giggles, you know, flatulence in the middle of class, everything that I could do to just get negative attention, I would do. And it was just owning my misery and trying to put on that facade like so many people do when they're depressed. Yeah. And and no one, it sounds like no one knew to call it that. There was a point where I always struggled in school. I, I don't do well with the typical approach for teaching. There weren't really options. My mom and my dad cared very deeply for my grades and it was very important that I did well. So, you know, at some points, like I had tutors, they did have me start to see a therapist. Uh, I think it was my junior year of high school. I started seeing the school counselor because this kid's grades are just plummeting. I'd stopped playing sports. I was just hanging out with kids on the weekend that were doing the types of things and getting into the type of trouble that was appealing to me, engaging in, in risky behavior. And I was being given opportunities to retake tests. You know, I didn't turn in that paper. So we'll give you a week extension, meeting with the headmaster of the school, meeting with my parents and the school counselor. And halfway through my junior year, I had a 0.56 GPA. So I was really excelling. And my parents had threatened for a while to send me away. But it was like, yeah, I've heard this many times before. And my relationship with them at that point was like, we didn't really talk to each other. If they tried talking to me, it was like, F you. So my parents one day approached me and they said, we're sending you to a school in Bridgeville, Delaware. And in that moment, I felt like some relief because I knew that I had no, I knew that I knew nothing. I knew that there was no way for me to get out of whatever I was going through. I had limited life experience. I was, you know, 16, 17 years old, 16 years old. I had no idea. I was like, I've never had the experience of like being a thriving person. Like the people that I look up to in this world, those types of models for me was like, this is unattainable. This is unachievable. And my parents gave me this information and they told me very little other than like, it's going to help teach you life skills. They're going to teach you structure, you know, help you get better. 
And so I said, okay. And then I was trying to go on the website of this this company with our 56k dial up and it was taking forever. So I called my cousin who had cable dial or cable internet and he pulled it up and he started reading stuff and it was like, this is very bizarre. So I sat down to dinner with my parents and I started asking more questions. And you know, at that point, the most important relationships that I had were with like my peers over AIM instant messenger. For sure. And I I started asking questions and I said, well, you know, can I talk to my friends on the phone? And they said, no, you have a 10 minute supervised talking period where you get to talk to us once a week. And I said, okay, well, can I use my computer? And they said, no, you're, you're not allowed to use computers. And I said, well, when can I talk to my friends? And they said, well, eventually you'll earn the privilege of being able to write letters to your friends. And I said, well, what about like breaks? And they said, well, every six to eight, eight weeks, you get to come home for a few days. It's year round school. So I freaked out. <laughs> Screamed at them. That was the nice version. Yeah, that was the nice version. Screamed at them, ran out of the house and hid late into the night and had I, I had no idea what to do. But I also knew that I was like deeply hurting. Four days later, I was in the car driving to Bridgeville, Delaware, where I attended the Cedars Academy for my last year and a half of high school. It was a deeply problematic and abusive institution. I had maybe 25 or there are 25, 30 kids there, two houses, one was all boys, one was co-ed. And it was the gamut of children who were struggling with emotional dysregulation. Um, there are kids there who were probably definitely autistic, um, oppositional defiance disorder, um, kids with legal problems. They were not equipped to deal with the types of troubles that we were struggling with. Headmaster Neil Schwartz, Mary Powers, married couple. She had studied psychology in school, so deemed herself um, a wizard with psychology. And her husband was a recovering heroin addict. And no experience with education or psychology. It was just, we're equipped to help these children turn their lives around whatever they thought. And so while there, whether it was myself or my peers, there was mental, physical, emotional, sexual abuse. Yeah, that was big T trauma. Yeah. So just to relating to, I went to one in Utah in probably, you know, in, in the similar, this, these, these places were in vogue at this time, sending your kids away to one of these places. And I, same thing. And they, I testified a couple of years ago in a class action lawsuit against the torture methods that they used on us during that time. So relate to that big time. But, you know, I also know, and I don't know if you experience this too, I know how much my parents were trying to help. I know they were. I know that they, I know that they were like this. They didn't know what else to do. I can't, um, I can, and I can't imagine what that, what that experience was like, because I, like you, was completely like unreachable. It was not, there was, there was nowhere it was going to go that was good. I mean, I mean, I know that and, and, and it was continuing to do that. And so it's an interesting place of like people do desperate things and we can still recover from those things too. A hundred percent. You know, of course it's, it's difficult to have those experiences and not feel like you are the people who are supposed to love me and care for me. And you put me in this position. You know, what I've come to understand today is they did the best that they could with what they were given. And if I look at like, what their experiences were with their upbringings and the challenges that they faced and what their family dynamics were like. It's like, you actually did a lot more than what right. you what you got. 
And so each generation, I think like we're doing the best that we can with what we have. And right now where you and I are, it's like we have a lot more that we could tap into a lot more knowledge and resources, part of that being clinicians, but also living through an age in which mental health and emotional development are more important. If that could be expanded on in the macro and a larger scale, you know, society as a whole could greatly benefit. How did you work through the trauma that you experienced by going to this place? What what was your journey out of that and through? Yeah. So similar to you, I, I graduated June 6 of 2003 and I just hit the bottle. I knew that the only way that I could not feel the amount of hurt and discomfort was to just drink and drink. And I had sworn that I was never going to do drugs, never, ever. And the first thing was I started smoking weed. And then, you know, if my friends around me were doing drugs like cocaine or taking pills. I would like, I was that guy who was just like screaming at them, like, you're going to kill yourself. Like, this is so dangerous. It was like the, yes. the kid from Dare just was uh-huh. coming out full force. Yeah. And there is this there is this guy who is like Matthew McConaughey from Dazed and Confused, you know, like they keep getting older and I like I keep getting older and they say the same age. And this guy was, I think, three, four years removed from high school. I went back home to my parents' house in DC and I would hang out with him and he would buy alcohol every day. We'd hang out every day. I would hang out with high school seniors because I missed my senior experience. Right. So like I went to community college part time. I worked part time at Tower Records. I knew that I loved music and I lost that passion when I was at Cedars. So I was like, let's try to rekindle that old flame. And, you know, I was just fumbling through life, making poor decisions and just, you know, every day chasing the escape. You know, things happen like having accidents, putting my arm through a window because I was drunk or high, forgetting that I drove my car because I was going through a period of smoking so much opium and reporting it stolen and then being like, oops. (laughs) It was me. It was me. I stole my own car. (laughs) I just parked it somewhere else. I was... I was literally biking home from work and passed a parking lot and was like, that's my car that I parked right there yesterday. Oh my God. It is literally, dude, where's my car? Yeah. You were the original. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, fast forward, I I was dating this girl who wanted to pursue music. She did research about a bunch of conservatories and colleges. Cedars Academy, where I went to school, they refused to send out my transcripts so I could not apply to college. They said, if I went to college, I would make them look bad. What? Yeah, makes no sense. Like Wait, the first they, on the phone they said that? Before I graduated, I was like looking up schools. I I was applying to City Year to do service. I was like really excited about UVM and um and they were like, no, we want you to return here next year and attend the University of Delaware. And then when you get out of class you come right back here and we are still in control of your life. But they're a high school. They are, but they had expanded their program so that for the kids that they deemed were not fit to re-emerge in society, they needed to stay for an extra year and squeeze some money out of your family. Now, I was had a rich uncle who paid for my, my time there. And so I was like, A, I'm 18, so no. And B, like my family doesn't have the money to pay for me to have you abuse me for another year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they send... No. What, well, what ended up happening was a year out, I took like two, three classes a semester okay. at community college and I called the assistant headmaster. Like she was one of the most volatile and abusive people there. 
but there were days where she you catch her on a good day she was nice which like as a as a developing child that's like you know like oh you're you're nice now and then no you're gonna rip my head off no you're going to like abuse me and publicly shame me in front of all my peers. That was like the name of the game, though, is that the volatility, the unknowing. I mean, that was one of the worst parts of being in those places was that you just never knew you could be doing anything. And they like they would come in and just I mean, you've never been humiliated and reamed like that in your life. And then other times they're just walked in the room. And then every now and again, you'd have someone come in who was genuinely a good person and they knew what was going on and they saw what was going on. They just thought they were signing up for a job that was like they could help some kids. They give you maybe a month tops of like oh, a little bit of freedom and being treated with decency. And then they're like, I cannot for my own sanity, continue to stay here and take in this secondary trauma. Yeah, they leave. Yeah. So this, this head, this, not the headmaster, the assistant VP. headmaster. The assistant headmaster. So she, she, you got her on a good day? I got her on a good day. I said, Hey, I've been working and I've been going to school part time. Like, here are my grades. I probably lied about my grades, but I was like, These are my grades. I really would like to apply to college. Would you mind sending me my transcripts? I knew that if she said anything to the headmasters or if I asked the headmasters, it would have been a hard no. She said, okay. And so she sent me my transcripts. So a year after graduating, I was able to apply to school. And this girl that I was dating who had researched these music schools, I was like, well, I don't have the motivation to do this myself. So I'll just apply to the schools that you applied to, assuming that you know what you're talking about. I submitted my audition tape late. So I was not accepted into the the conservatory first go around at SUNY Purchase in Westchester, New York. But I decided, you know, I'm going to go there. And so I went there first semester or first day. I knew absolutely nobody at the school. I was so terrified. And then across the hall from my dorm room, I heard someone playing cello and someone playing banjo. So I grabbed my bass. I went over there. Music had become like my new basketball. And I was like, I'm just going to communicate through music. So I walked in. I was like, hey, can I can I jam with you guys? And I just started jamming. And then it turned out they had a duffel bag full of beer. Massive duffel bag. They asked me if I wanted one. And for the next three days, it was like four or five, six of us just going through like 150 beers. It was heaven. The school was... Like four or five fine art conservatories where some of the most incredible world-class artists have come out of whoever the architect was designed it to look like a prison. So this <laughs> wild juxtaposition. And yeah, it was just like getting drunk and high every day. And first semester, my grades sucked. So I was put on academic probation. They didn't provide lights in your room. So you had to bring your own lamps. And my light bulb went out. So I was stealing one from the hallway and got busted by an RA. So now I was on like a behavioral probation along with my academic probation, decided it's time to, to buck up and improve my grades. And the only thing I knew to do was just take a lot of amphetamines. So, yeah, of course. so I would take hundreds of milligrams daily and whatever side effect you could have, I had times 10. And as soon as it kicked in, whatever I was doing for like the next 10 hours straight is what I did for 10 hours straight. And solitaire was like, what I did. I played solitaire on my PC laptop. So not school. I got enough school done because like, okay, it was like maybe like one day out of the week, I was actually able to like do schoolwork and I was laser, laser focused. So I pulled my grades up a bit. I ended up in the hospital from the amount of 
amphetamines that I was taking. And I like shut myself off from the world because it's just impossible to communicate with people when you're like that wired. You know, that was kind of like one of those moments where I could have been like, man, this is a problem. But it was just more so like, this is how I function. If I need to do well in school, I have not like take some amphetamines and do better. It was like, take all of them at once. Oh God, I'm having secondhand anxiety from just hearing how much amphetamine, like that would, I would just, I would, oh, boo, yeah. hard deck. Fingers and toes, black and blue. Like my armpit stains were like beyond my, oh, my, sure. my belt. Yeah, it was, it was gnarly. Fast forward summer of 2005, I, I got a DWI back in DC on summer break. I decided to drive to a party that was like four blocks from my parents' house because um, just too much effort to walk there. Got back in my car and got arrested and spent about 13 hours in jail. I was supposed to go on vacation with my family the next day. And I called them from jail and just said, I'm not going to go on vacation. I don't want to go. And I didn't say anything about being in jail. And then I called <laughs> a friend the next afternoon and said, hey, I'm at jail. Can you pick me up? And he did. And he took me home. And... I was just mortified at what I had just done, what had happened. So I drowned those feelings with more alcohol, took a bunch of pills, blacked out. That friend came over like randomly to check on me. And I was just like walking around the house, talking to myself in a blackout. And uh, But that was for me kind of like the beginning of the end, because now I was dealing with the, the legal system. I was like, yeah, either go to rehab, do an alcohol education class. And I was going back to school. So I found an outpatient rehab. They did random drug tests and piss tests. And so I was like, all right, like I, I can't get busted now. This is very serious. So I decided I'm going to stop using drugs and I am just going to drink and not drink two days before I'm going in because I had to go like two or three days a week. Well, then I would drink the day before and I'd say like, all right, I'm stopping at like six. And and so it was like that first limit that I set for myself broke it. All right. All right. I drank till six and I went in and I, I peed and I passed. So like, we're fine. I'm going to stop drinking by 8 p.m. And then I would drink till 10. And then the next time I'm like, all right, oh, like everything was fine. So I'll drink till 10. And then it keeps, I keep moving that goalpost until it's just like, I'm drinking until I pass out. The time frame doesn't matter. And then eventually I was sitting in there listening to my peers talk about their experience with drugs and alcohol. And all I'm thinking is like, God, you guys aren't even that bad. And I can present myself very well when things are difficult, when I need to. And that's what I was doing. And then I finally said, I just opened my mouth and I said, I have a problem. And I was like, well, that's what you're here for. They're like, no, no, no. I just realized it, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, I get it. You're like very involved in what you're going through because you're struggling too. But like, this right. is my aha moment. And so it was like, yeah, okay, great. And I stopped drinking. And I lost my mind. One of the conservatories at school was a dance conservatory. And there are these ballerinas who lived down the hall from me that were my friends. And on Friday night, Saturday night, I would like go down the hall, hang out with them while they got ready to go out and party. A couple times I tried going to parties with them. And I was there for maybe five minutes was like, I want to kill myself. Yeah, I, I can't I don't do not know how to do this sober. sober. Yeah. And so I would just go hang out in my room by myself and work on music. This went on for, I don't know, two and a half months, three months, and it was winter break. I went back home to DC. On Christmas Day, our family dog ate a bunch of chocolate and died. And I've always heard like chocolate is lethal for dogs, but I never had heard of a dog actually dying. Me either. 
And so we knew that he'd ate the chocolate and he was like off the walls and I stayed up late watching TV and it was just like, bring me the ball and I throw the ball and this was till like three or 4 a.m. And I went to sleep and maybe an hour or two later, my sister runs in my room and she's like, Brendan, like something's wrong with Lazo. And I, I go in there and I see him and I was just like, oh my God, he's dead. And my, my dad worshiped that dog. He was like sobbing hysterically, ran to the car, took him to the vet and that was it. He had passed and I was devastated and was already like now in this newly sober just horrific depression, I decided, all right, my birthday birthday is December 29th. I'm just going to drink today. And I just need this relief. I've been just suffering through this, this like sobriety. So New Year's Eve with my friend Dave and his girlfriend, Courtney, they came over, they brought some liquor, 7pm took my first shot and had my last drink the next morning and passed out woke up probably 3 or 4 p.m. Nobody was in the house. My sister had left to go back to San Diego where she was living. And a friend called me up and said, hey, do you want to hang out? And I said, sure. And they came over and there was an unopened bottle of champagne on the counter. So I poured her a glass. I poured myself a glass. She drank a couple of sips and then she left. And I drank my glass. I drank her glass. I drank the rest of the bottle. I stole a bottle of wine from my dad and I drank that. And then I went out and I bought a bottle of liquor and I drank that bottle of liquor. From there, I was drunk every single day. I got myself kicked out of rehab because I told on myself for drinking. And they're like, sorry, like we can't let you continue with our program. I ended up just going on a horrific bender and started using drugs again and wound up drinking and using so much that I stopped breathing. My roommate found me, called an ambulance. They took me to the hospital. I was brought into the ICU. They put me on a ventilator. I was in a coma for a couple of days. Couldn't breathe on my own. So I had a machine keeping me alive. My parents get a call in the middle of the night. This is after like a horrible snowstorm. It culminates into like me in a coma on life support. My parents get a call. Your son's in a coma. You know, there's a 50-50 chance he's going to live or die. God. So they drive up from D.C., they're waiting for me to wake up, see what happens. Surprise, I survive. Um, <laughs> and spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> um, so they tell me um, what happened. I missed the whole thing. So honestly, course, like, yeah, not traumatic. I, I totally relate to that. My, my OD was very traumatic for everybody but me. Mm-hmm. Got like, it. Yep. Can I get the TLDR? Because I'm, I'm like, I got, I got things to do here. <laughs> It's totally, you feel terrible because you're like, clearly everybody's so traumatized, but you're like, I was not awake. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. They had like, at that time, they like fed me charcoal. My friends were like watching the doctors and nursing staff weren't paying attention after they gave me the charcoal and they put an oxygen mask on me for a bit. And my friends are watching as I'm throwing up charcoal while I'm passed out into the oxygen mask and then choking on my vomit. I mean, just awful. So traumatic. Everyone, and I, I wake up and I'm like, I've got black all over me. What happened? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, guys, guys. <laughs> like, the, like, you can tell me the story another time, but like, why do I have this black stuff? Yeah, all yeah, over yeah. Me? Everything else that happened after that, like my right lung had filled majority up with fluid because I got pneumonia from the overdose. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I stayed yeah. in the hospital for a bit. When I was being transferred out, they were like, we think you need to go to rehab. We've set you up with a program. And I was just like, what? Oh, you you thought that was that was surprising for you? Yeah, it was a little surprising. I was like, yeah. I, I think where'd you think you were headed? <laughs> I don't know. Great places. Great places, Ashley. Bienvenidos a Miami. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where'd you think you were going after the ICU and the, the charcoal? No? Okay. You're like, rehab? Really? Yeah. I was like, I think we're good here. Like, yeah, I yeah. think lessons yeah. have been learned. Yeah. yeah. Things, things were said. Lessons were learned. 
Yeah. You know, okay. change, change happens when change is ready. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, get your fucking ass in the car. You're going to rehab. I get in the car with my parents when I was discharged and they had set me up with this program. Punctuality is not my strong suit. So I missed my intake. And when I showed up, they were like, you know, I, again, I presented normal, you know, just like, oh, I, I drank too much. I don't even know what I said, but whatever I said, they were like, oh, okay. Well, like, why don't you just start with our IOP and then we'll do your intake later. So I went in and then it was like a week later, I did my intake. And they were like, ah, Jesus, you should be in our residential program. But you're already doing our outpatient. So why don't you just continue with that and we'll see how it goes. So I was like, okay. I was told, you know, you have to go to to these peer support groups. And so I said, okay. And I reached out to a friend and I asked him if he wanted to go to one of these, you know, peer support group meetings with me. And he said, I'm going to have a couple guys call you. Next thing you know, I'm in the car with one of these guys. It turned out we went to elementary school together. He takes me to one of these meetings and it turns out there's a woman speaking there who I went to high school with. Then, you know, the other guy that I talked to asked me to go to a meeting after I got out of my IOP then that evening. And, and I showed up and people were like, do you have a, a sponsor? Do you have you know, a home group. And I'm like, I don't even know what these peer support groups are. I don't know what a sponsor is. I don't know what any of this is. You know, suddenly I am fully immersed in this really intense community of young people who are in recovery. You know, I I, I got sober and suddenly it was like, all right, I'm miserable again. Like not right. having drugs and alcohol in my system is not enough for me to be okay. Like I had yeah. d- done that for a few months before and I was out of my mind. I tried exercising more. You know, I got a job and I thought, you know, if I just do something with my life or I have purpose and I started taking some classes again at community college and I got myself back into doing music. And I remember the first time that I sat down to write music with another person, I had a panic attack and it took me a minute to realize like, this is something that I only did when I was drunk or high. For me, music and writing music in particular is a really intimate and and personal process. My body just reacted to that where I was like, I'm freaking out because I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to share this space with another creative person. And I found that that was the case for so many things. Like, going to the park, it was like, go to the park and get high, <laughs> you know, go to the park and actually just enjoy being in the park while not high. Having to develop new thoughts of who I am and who I want to be. And all of that was so hard as my brain was like rewiring without drugs and alcohol. Suddenly it was like that part of me that shut down when I hit puberty, when I was that kid put on the varsity basketball team who was terrified of engaging with other people. I wasn't a smoker. I hated smoking because I watched my grandfather die from his smoking. But I was like, I don't know what to do with my hands. I don't have... Yep. I don't have a bowl in my hand. I don't have like, I have nothing. What do I do? I started smoking cigarettes, but only socially, but like chain smoking like crazy. And I would go to these like sober parties, you know, I bum cigarettes. And I remember I'm sitting next to this guy, Andy, and he bummed me a cigarette and I'm smoking for like a minute. And he turns to me, he's like, dude, you're, you're smoking the butt. And I looked down, I was like, so anxious and uncomfortable that like, I didn't even realize that I was smoking a cigarette backwards. Oh my God just so deeply uncomfortable. So I decided that 
eventually I got better. I started doing the work. Like they were like, you need to show up. You need to help other people. You need to like be of service. And I started doing those things and I started to see change. And, you know, part of my process was going back and making amends to people that I had harmed. And I went door to door in the neighborhood that I grew up in. You know, I made amends to my neighbors for the parties that I threw and the harm that I caused. I drove to New York to make amends to my family. I drove to Atlanta to make amends to my family. I was gung-ho. And in the midst of that, I, I paused and I said, who is this person that is showing up and with confidence saying, here are the things that I did. Not only that, but like, here's the, the person that I am today, feeling confident in who I was. And suddenly it was like opportunities were coming up where when I made amends to my uncle, he had a business partner that had done some heavy work in the music industry. And I happened to have my guitar and I was like playing a song by myself in a room. And they were like, oh my God, wait, play that again. And they were like, you need to be doing this. Like, we're going to bring you down to Atlanta and record an album of your music. And like, this is a big deal. And my uncle at the time was like filthy rich. So they were like, he's going to finance this whole thing. And and I was like, oh, okay, this is crazy. Now it, it didn't pan out because he had other business business things he had to focus on, but it, it inspired me to realize like, oh, yeah. I, this is something I should do and pursue. You know, I know that I love this and having just floundered through life up to this point in my life, 21 years, I 21, 22, I was like, I'm going to do this. So I decided to go back to the conservatory that I was studying at before. I, I hadn't said, but I, after a year, I auditioned for a, a program in the conservatory there and I was accepted. And so it was a semester into that. I, I bottomed out and I had to leave. So I was like, let me see if I can go back. And I went back and it was like the universe just handing one thing after another to me. Like, yeah, like all you have to do is meet with this person. And like, now you're back in school. Oh, meet with that person. Now you're back in the conservatory. Because you had left and you're on medical leave, you bypass the 50, 60 person waiting list for an apartment. And like, you're at the top of the list. And because you're 20, at this point, I was 21. Because you're 21, you get first pick at like the best apartments on campus. As I'm leaving, I'm on the phone with my dad. And I was like, if I don't have an apartment, I can't come back. So like, all these things are amazing. And I'm like, wait, they're calling me right now. Hey, we have an apartment available for you. This happened in 48 hours. And I was like, Oh, my God, the universe is just like giving me this enormous gift. And the people from the group that I was in were like, you're going to die if you go back there. They were like, you need to stay here because this is the, the only place that'll work for you. And I was like, no, nah, I don't think that's the case. Like, I feel like what I've grown to understand about my recovery and who I am as a, a person at that point, a year and a half, two year, almost two years in recovery is that, you know, if I exercise the tools that I've been practicing to date and I stick close to other people who are in recovery, I can go anywhere and I can do anything. I firmly believe it's important for me to not just have dreams, but to pursue those dreams and chase those dreams. So I went back to school. I continued to stay sober. I continued to be a part of the recovery community. And I got my bachelor's degree. I found the people who are busting their butts to like really have music careers. And I collaborated with them. We became friends. We became peers. We became, became colleagues. I took a ton of classes. In three semesters, I took 31 classes and got 29 A's, a B, and a pass. Moved to New York City and was a starving artist for a while. Decided I don't like performing. Gives me too much anxiety. And so I started pursuing just composing for film and television was getting gigs doing some commercial work independent films short documentaries partnered up with some guys who were so brilliant and so talented and we were composing together 
wish I knew about the organization that I work for now, Music Cares, because could have bailed me out during some hard times. I was struggling and then I was having these moments of success where it was like, oh man, I just got like a fat paycheck. I'm good now. And then like that money dwindles down and it's like, oh, the volatility of this, this life of a freelancer. And I wasn't quite finding my, finding my feet. And I decided, you know, I also don't love the fact that I'm, I'm dependent on creating music for other people. And a lot of times on projects that I don't really like that much. And I was like, you know what? Maybe there's something I can do where I can use music as a means to help people. And I decided in that moment to go to grad school and study music therapy. Month into it, got asked to score a feature film that was probably the most important project I've ever worked on. It was a film called The Anonymous People that was promoting a grassroots movement to change public policies and public perceptions. I see you've probably seen it or you know of it. Loved, 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 loved Anonymous People. Love it. It's an incredible film. And what has come from that film, those guys, you know, they ended up doing then Generation Found about recovery high schools. Since that film, there's like 30, 40 recovery high schools that have started around the country. You know, it was like, I made the decision to go to grad school and suddenly I get this opportunity with the anonymous people. And it was like, yeah, it was the most money I've ever made in a project, but also like it aligns with my personal beliefs and my values. I'm growing into the person that I never even dreamed of being. And I end up getting my master's degree in music therapy from NYU. I become a music psychotherapist. I'm working in residential psychiatry. You know, I became like the in-house recovery expert at Kings County Hospital when we had clients that were struggling with addiction. Like I would consult whatever unit they were on. I would help get them into treatment if we needed to get them into residential treatment. Fast forward to 2018, 2019, a fellow music therapist, a friend of mine, John Sampson, guy from South Africa, is working on his second or third children's album of music, asks me if I can arrange one of the pieces. I did. A few months later, I ran into him on the street and he said, hey, we're close to my house. Do you want to come hear what I've been working on? And he plays me more of the music from his album. And I was like, oh my God, my mind is blown. This guy is like working on this body of, of music that is promoting these ideas that children so desperately need, like helping children connect with their emotional worlds, talking about the challenges that we face in society, the predicaments that we face at, at large, you know, songs like Bipolar Bear, you know, ADD. Um, <laughs> it's uh, truly amazing. And, and so I just said, like, hey, can I just keep working on this with you? And I was like, I don't even need you to pay me. I just I'm going to keep showing up. So every day I get off work at the hospital and I would ride my bike to his his house, his studio. I'd sit there and we'd swap places. I played maybe a dozen instruments on the album. I mixed, I engineered, I produced whatever he needed. I did. And that was over the course of several months. At one point, his hard drive crashed and he was like, that's it. Like I can't finish this. And he wanted to finish it in time so he could submit it to the Grammys. And I said, dude, I get it. You're burnt out. I got this. So I found an IT guy. Two days later, fixed. We're back in business. Got the project across the finish line, submitted to the Grammys, November of 2019. It gets nominated for a Grammy. Like that was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. I showed up to work. I told my colleagues, I was like, guys, I'm here. I can't work. I don't know how to function with this level of excitement and joy. Yeah. Fast forward, beginning of uh, 2020, we win a Grammy. So I got this... Silly little look at her. Woo! Paperweight. Oh, love that. And and such a cool project to like win such a wild ride of how that works. Tell me about working at Music Cares. How did that come about? 
Yeah. So Music Cares is an unbelievable organization. We are the largest safety net for all professionals in the music industry. The scope of work that we do is so broad and really impactful. I mean, our, we have three different teams under the umbrella of our health and human services department. Our human services team will help people with basic living expenses like if their tour got canceled and they don't know how they're going to pay their rent or their mortgage, you know, their car breaks down and they don't know how they're going to be able to go on tour without their car, they will come to us and we will help pay their rent and help pay for their car, help pay those basic limits. Yeah. Our health services team, if someone has a medical bill or a dental bill that they can't pay, stuff happens with our health, our healthcare system ain't that great, we will help pay for those bills. The team that I'm on, the mental health and addiction recovery services team, our team is all licensed clinicians. And if someone is struggling with substance use disorder, if someone is struggling with their mental health, we will do thorough assessments and help figure out what the best course of action is to get you the treatment that you need so you can get your life back on track. It could be as simple as we provide a grant to help people pay for therapy and we'll help find a therapist if you don't know where to begin there. We have a number of providers that we contract with. If someone is struggling with alcohol abuse, substance abuse, we will help figure out what is the best form of treatment for you. And then we have contracts and relationships with different treatment centers, one of which is now officially Lion Rock Recovery. Yes. So exciting. So we will pay for the entirety of your treatment or a portion of your treatment. But like if someone needs to go to residential treatment, we will get you 30 days of residential treatment and detox and pay for the entire thing. It's incredible. It's really incredible. And I know several very, very famous people who you know, now have a lot of money, but went through music cares when they were nobody. Yeah. The stories are are endless. And it's not just the musicians, right? It could be like a guitar tech, stagehand, lighting crew, tour bus driver, manager, someone that works at a label. And I didn't really know what music cares was until one day I got a call from a friend who works in the treatment world in New York City. And he said, Hey man, uh, would you be interested in a client manager position at Music Cares and the mental health and addiction recovery services team? And I said, Yeah, I would. And I didn't really know what it was, but yeah. I looked it up and I was like, Holy crap, like this is incredible. Immediately it was like, This is my dream job. Like my world's colliding. It is an enormous gift to be able to do the work that we do. You know, someone sends an email, someone calls, someone's manager calls, their family member calls. You take that call and and to me it's like it's life or death. What can we do right now to help save this person's life? If they're ready, they're ready. If they're not, I'm planting a seed. It's an amazing thing. And your story is incredible. And I love what you guys are doing at Music Cares. I just, I wish we had more in different industries. You know, there there were more organizations like Music Cares. It's such an amazing model. Thank you so, so much for being here. I so appreciate it. And I know this is going to help so many people. So thank you. I have an update on the smoke detector. Oh my gosh. I wish you guys had a little button on your listening device where you could just click no. I don't want any more of that. (laughs) They do. It's called fast forward. But it doesn't tell us that data. So we don't know. know? Mm, I don't know. I got some texts that said they (laughs) were cracking up when they were hearing it. No, update. I think they found it. The hedges were trimmed. The grass looked like it had been altered. And I think in that process, they found it because I did not hear the warning beep. Has it rained or anything? It could have just been killed by the exposure. Um, it, well, it, you know, probably the sprinklers. Yeah, that doesn't help. But again, I don't know where I, I don't know where it was. So I don't, I don't know how exposed or unexposed it was, but 
I didn't hear it. So I think it's been, I think the saga has Mm. ended. You know, I think that's a lesson for everybody, which is that if you just leave a problem alone long enough, it'll eventually resolve itself. It'll eventually become someone else's problem. It'll eventually become someone else's problem, oh, right? God. Isn't that the lesson learned? I, well, yes. I think that's <laughs> the lesson learned for the moment. And I think the other lesson that's coming is the karma for... Uh-huh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you waiting? Are you like bracing for it? Oh, Are you ready? 100%, 100%. Have you been wearing any kind of like protective gear mm-hmm. or anything like that? I'm going to be in some, like I'm going to have some procedure or something in my life and I'm going to be in... <laughs> in a bed recovering, unable to move. And some smoke detector is going to be like, check, check. And for whatever reason, they won't be able to fix it. And I will have to live with that for days at a time. I think you're just going to have some sort of code happening in your room where it's just beeping over and over again, but nobody hears it or checks it. Oh, nobody so else just, hears it? Yeah. Oh, that's way worse. Ooh, yeah, that's torture. Way worse. I had a weird, like a really bad mental health time where like right before I'd go to bed, I would start to have a single line of a song looped over and over and over endlessly. Wait, during like the mental health crisis? This was like just a bad mental health series of months, basically. Okay. And during that time period, it would just be like one line of a Britney Spears song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would just loop over endlessly, 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 like while I was trying to go to sleep and I could not do any, I could, oh, I, would listen to a, I would listen to another song. I would yeah. get up, I would do all these things. <laughs> it happened recently where the song was still crazy after all these years, the Paul Simon song for four hours, not sleeping, hearing oh. still crazy after all these years. Oh, <laughs> my somehow it's really strange and I've always had it where like I wake up with a song stuck in my head. I would just wake up with it a lot of mornings. And when I was a kid, I would wake up and I like couldn't get the song out of my head. So I just lean into it and just sing it around the house. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm endlessly. Uh, Regularly, it was Whitney Houston because I'm a 90s kid. And it was not uncommon for me to be in the shower, in the bathroom, like getting ready at 6am, belting out. Whitney is because you have the pipes for it, right? Yeah, Yeah, when I say belt, I mean, literally, (laughs) it sounded like a belt uh, hitting some form of naughty person. Um, And it was... I was waiting for the belt to a lot of things. I'm not a naughty person. Well, you know, every now and then it was like, ah! <laughs> Does Ashley have somebody in the shower with her and a belt? Is that no. no, I would just sit on the toilet or sit in the bathroom and sing, I will always love you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it was stuck in my head, okay? Uh-huh. It was just giving yourself some support. Exactly. Through that trying time. Well, it's going to be stuck in my head. <laughs> Listen here, fuckers. You're along for the ride. <laughs> and my husband is traumatized by that song. And then I hit some Celine Dion like all by myself when I was pregnant because he was working in LA. So I would just, all by myself. Is that a Celine Dion song? Are you fucking kidding? Get your life together. She may have covered that. That is not a Celine Dion song. Are you kidding me? We're going to find out right now. Are you questioning Celine Dion? Uh The disrespect of the 90s queen. This says it's from Celine Dion. This is from 1975. Eric Carmen. She did it in 96. 
96. Which is 21 years later. Yeah. And the year after Tupac died <laughs> and Jerry died. So I don't remember is much. That, are you trying to bring some sort of emotional? I'm just saying 90, the 90s were, they were the golden era. They were good. Everything went downhill after that. Well, speaking of music, obviously, Brendan Berry. Speaking of award winning artists. Award winning, Grammy winning artists artist Ramming. was Ram- this our smoothest transition we've ever had 100%. i think it was yep i would do just what he did too i know it was actually topical for this but i would find a way to bust out the grammy in every zoom call that i had just have it in sight well that works too i feel like you could just also i mean i don't know how you would introduce yourself but he could introduce himself as like hi i'm grammy award winning brendan i would try to figure out an honorific of some kind i could put at the end it would just be like g-r-m-m-y and they'd be like what is that and i'd be like grammy oh that's for grammy yeah like you're an mba i'm a grammy no i thought it was super cool that he got it for what he got it for too like it was like to have somebody who you know, struggled mental health stuff and ha- have that become like a career passion of his, but have this music thing and like have them just collide in this peak moment like that. Like, I, that's so cool. That's just perfect. It's kind of the dream where, like, this is what I say like, I made a career out of having used drugs and alcohol too much. And what I tell my family is that it was job training. Sure. I, l- I like when people are able to parlay their seemingly liabilities into assets, right? So how do I get to do that with like all the burning stuff I like to do as like a young teen? Such as firefighter? Don't you think like 38 is like right when they want like rookies to come in? As I think you should tell them about the smoke detector. We are... Getting close to the end of the season, we're so glad and thankful for you tuning in and listening every week to The Courage to Change. It really matters a lot to us. We do our very best to give you stories that keep you hopeful. And I say it every week, but we really are rooting for you. If, if now feels like a particularly difficult time or you know, being around family or being around familiar places feels like a particularly difficult time. Write into us, you know, communicate with us. If you don't feel like you have any other place to turn, like we're we're here to respond to your messages. We want to hear from you. We want to help you if you can. We want to point you in the right direction. We want to, even if it's just getting through things until the new year starts and maybe things can be different, that all that matters to us and reach out if you're feeling stuck or you feel like you don't know where to turn. Please, please, please reach out to us. Ashley, Anything you want to leave the people with this week? I just want to echo what you said. And thank you so much for listening. And please reach out to us. We answer all of our messages. We will answer yours if you message us, podcast at lionrock.life. We would love to hear from you. Hang in there. Holidays can be tough. Just remember that this too shall pass. So hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.